Our gracious God, we thank and praise you that these things that we have just been declaring happened according to the scriptures. Now living, creating, speaking God, we stand in awe of your word, the Holy Scriptures. We are in awe of its warnings. We are in awe even more of its promises. And we are compelled to declare with the Apostle who, who is sufficient for these things. And yet your, that same word teaches us that in Christ we are more than conquerors. So teach us what that means and what it means to live for you in the light of that great and glorious truth. Amen. Please be seated. On July the 30th, 1919, the hostilities of the First World War were, of course, over. Just north of Baghdad, a number of British soldiers were still waiting after a number of months to be demobbed and come back home. On that date, the 30th of July, the following letter was written. Dear Walter, I've got some very sad news to tell you. Last night, when down at the river bathing, poor old Eric was drowned. You must forgive me for putting it so blunt, but I feel too full up with it to say much about it. We were bathing as usual, and poor old Eric went down. We dived with ropes round us and swam about for half an hour, but nothing was seen of him. He was evidently caught in a swift current and carried away. It was all over so quickly that it is hard to realize it. They say that everything works together for good, but I'm blessed if I can see it. You know my saying, don't you? What is to be, will be. Please forgive this short letter. I hope they will find the body and bury him with military honours. Remembrance to all, I remain your old pal, Sid. Eric Gazer's body was never found. His young widow was left to bring up three small children on her own. Her own Christian faith must have been shaken by that tragic, unexpected, and early loss of her husband, who she loved so deeply. Nevertheless, her, she had a Christian faith, and over the years, that faith grew deeper and richer, despite many difficulties of bringing up three small children as a single parent in virtual poverty. But she had that Christian faith and she taught that same Christian faith to her daughters. They, in turn, put their hope in Christ. And then they, uh, in turn, passed that same Christian faith on to the next generation, including me, because Eric Gaze was my grandfather. 
they say everything works together for good. And I wouldn't say a, a word against somebody who writes a letter like that the day after losing a friend in such tragic circumstances. Who wouldn't be searching around for some explanation, some crumb of comfort? When the letter carries those words, they say everything works together for good. However, this is, of course, a half-remembered quotation from Romans 8, verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I'd be very grateful if you could now turn to that passage. You'll find uh, a Bible uh, very close to you, probably in the, uh, the, the chair just in front of you. And uh, Romans chapter 8 is found on page 1134 and 1135 of those Bibles. Verse 28 again says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But events such as the one that uh, comes from the, uh, the history, well, 90 years ago from our own family, asks us, how can Paul have had such unshakable conviction in the face of everything that life can throw at us? Has Paul forgotten all the sadnesses, all the disappointments, all the bereavements, all the pain that, he, that he'd met in his own life? and that we meet so often in our own? Is Romans 8 verse 28 not just a specimen of vague optimism, a hope against all hope, that somehow everything will turn out in the end? And is not such vague optimism too easily dashed, too quickly to, to be replaced by fatalism, what will be will be? Or worse, despair. Well, no, Paul has not forgotten. All the way through the passage that Rachel read to us uh, a little while ago, Paul has these two realities in mind. Present suffering and future glory. And rather than concentrate on verse 28, which is, surely the climax of a chapter which itself is the climax of Romans, which itself is one of the grandest writings in the whole of Scripture. Rather than focusing on that verse itself, I want to ask, how did Paul reach that point? By what path did he reach that mountaintop? I want to try to show you this evening how Paul gets from one to the other, from groaning to glory. In fact, in this passage, we hear three groans. Let's look at each of them together in turn. First of all, Paul says, God's creation groans. Please look at verse 22. 
Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, there's both a past and a present future to this. Firstly, Paul glances back at the past. In verse 20, he says, the creation was subjected to frustration. When God finished his creation, as recorded in the early chapters of Genesis, he saw all that he had made, and it was very good. But the man, the pinnacle of this good creation, rebelled, of course, and brought in futility and frustration on a cosmic scale. Please notice the words that Paul uses to describe the plight of God's creation, now marred and spoilt on account of humanity's rebellion. Paul refers in verse 18 to suffering, in verse 20 to vanity, in verse 21 to bondage, in verse 21 to decay, in verse 22 to pain. God's good creation has become a groaning creation. But after glancing back at the past, Paul sets his sights firmly on the future of God's creation. Creation, we read in verse 19, is waiting. The whole of creation, says Paul, is waiting with eager expectation, standing on tiptoe, craning its neck. What's it waiting for? It's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. At the end of a play, the final curtain is drawn back to reveal the actors as their true selves. And at the end of this age, there will be an unveiling and a public display of the character of all those who are in Christ, the sons of God. They may not look much like sons of God at the moment. Certainly they experience suffering and weakness just like everyone else. But the last day will publicly manifest their real status. And the whole creation is waiting expectantly for that moment. In fact, the creation not only waits for the revealing of the sons of God, verse 19, but will share in that liberation itself. Verse 21, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Well, we look around at God's good and yet marred creation. We contemplate climate change, the prospect of nuclear holocaust, the AIDS epidemic, and these are massive threats that we dare not take lightly. But they cannot and they will not have the last word. Look at verse 22. The suffering of God's creation is not its death throes, but its birth pangs. This is not twilight, it's dawn. 
God has promised to deliver this suffering creation from its corruption and decay and to bring it to freedom and glory. Let's respond to this with humility. Although nature itself may be red in tooth and claw, it's surely a thousand acts of human greed and abuse that have brought us to the edge of global catastrophe. And let us then remind us of our Christian duty towards this fragile environment. For when we care for this groaning creation, we are not oiling the wheels of a vehicle that's about to run over the edge of a cliff. Rather, we are demonstrating respect for God's handiwork, destined as it is, not for annihilation, but for glorious renewal. God's creation groans groans with anticipation, with eager expectation. But now secondly, God's people groan. Verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Human life, though it has countless pleasures and delights, is not what it was meant to be, nor, thank God, what it will be. And so we groan, and we hope, and we wait. We groan. In so many ways, our reach exceeds our grasp. Bishop Tom Wright has written about this in a helpful book called Simply Christian. There's a copy of of it on the bookstall, and I recommend it to you. In the early part of that book, he explores the ways in which we strive for justice, but seldom achieve it. We yearn for spiritual meaning, and yet end up so often in the dead end of idolatry. We seek intimacy in our relationships, And yet so often we leave a trail of heartache and loneliness. We crave beauty, but then it fades from our sight like a fleeting sunset. So many half-filled dreams and aspirations. No wonder we groan. But we hope. The followers of Jesus Christ have much now and the promise of much more to come. We are the people, says Paul here, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't just bring God's first fruits, the first bits of the harvest. He is God's first fruits, the foretaste of that final harvest. And again, we groan in eager anticipation. The very presence of the Holy Spirit being only the first fruits is a constant reminder of the incompleteness of our salvation as we share with the creation its frustration and its bondage to decay and its pain. Please will you note that our hope includes the redemption of our bodies. 
we do not look forward to some ethereal, disembodied existence. The final chapter of God's book is not burying our mortal bodies in the grave and then our souls going off to heaven. No, there's something far more solid than that. At the last day, God will give life to our mortal bodies and we shall then take our place in the new heavens and the new earth. We groan, we hope, and as we do so, we wait. We wait, says Paul in verse 23, eagerly, and in verse 25, we wait patiently. Not so eagerly that we lose patience, and not so patiently that we lose our eagerness. And this waiting is not idle. It's not like standing around with our hands in our pockets waiting for a bus to turn up. This waiting is more like a a parent who has a sick child. She's waiting for the doctor to arrive. She's waiting for help to arrive. But in the meantime, she tends to the needs of her sick child. She groans with concern. She waits with eager anticipation. She does everything that she can until help arrives. There's a remarkable moment near the beginning of Mark's Gospel where Jesus comes face to face with the man who has the deeply disfiguring and disabling disease of leprosy. Mark 1 and verse 41 tells us that Jesus was moved with compassion. And that text could equally be rendered, he groaned with indignation. He groaned with indignation He groaned with anger, even. And then he reached out his hand and touched the man and healed him. He was indignant. He was in pain because of the present state of suffering of the world and the people who populate the world. And we who are followers of Jesus Christ turn to the pain and suffering of our fellow human beings with a compassion with an indignation that compels us to act. God's creation groans. God's people groan. But thirdly, and perhaps most surprisingly, God's spirit groans. Verse 26. The spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. If, as we have just seen, the Son of God groaned with compassion in the face of human suffering, we shouldn't be surprised if the Spirit of God does the same for the people of God. He shares with us our longing for freedom. He groans with us and for us. The scripture says that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Maybe Paul is thinking of some particular weaknesses, weakness due to sickness or weakness due to the persecution that Christians so often have to endure. Or maybe he's thinking more generally of our human condition, the weakness that is part of our creatureliness in our damaged and disordered world. In any case, the Holy Spirit, Paul says, helps us in our weakness. 
Moreover, the Spirit helps us in our ignorance. We do not know, says Paul, what we ought to pray for. We often do not know, for example, whether to pray for deliverance from some difficulty or for patience to endure it. But the Spirit knows, and the Spirit will turn that knowledge into powerful, prevailing prayer. I asked for strength, that I might stand straight and tall. He made me weak, that I might lean on him. I asked for health, that I might do great things. He gave me grace, that I might do good things. I asked for riches, that I might be comfortable. He gave me poverty, that I might be wise. I asked for power, that I might have the respect of men. He gave me weakness, that I might feel a need of God. I asked for all things, that I might enjoy life. He gave me life, that I might enjoy all things. I received nothing I had ever asked for. He gave me all things I had ever needed Friends, our prayers may contain all the wrong words. Indeed, they may contain no words at all. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with with groans that words cannot express. And as John Bunyan said, in prayer, it's better to have a heart without any words than words without a heart. For the Holy Spirit himself will make good both our weakness and our ignorance. In conclusion then, here in Romans chapter 8 is the heart of our assurance, our security, our confidence as Christians. We hear the groans of God's creation, of God's people and of God's spirit. But these are groans of eager expectation. To hope for complete deliverance from pain in this life is a pipe dream. God has not guaranteed us immunity from tragedy. He has not promised us freedom from suffering. But still, we know that in all things, God does work for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, And we can share with the Apostle Paul an unshakable conviction in the good purposes of God from divine foreknowledge before the creation of the world right through to glorification in the new heaven and the new earth to come. And since we believe that God is for us, having already given up his own son for us, we can believe too that God will give us everything that we truly need. Nothing that life or death can throw at us can prevail against us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Our 
I would just like to ask you in this moment of quiet and reflection. Do you know the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord? Paul has said much in the earlier chapters of Romans of faith, of trust, of simple acceptance and belief. Do you now trust in Christ? Do you receive the good gift of God in Christ? Are you willing to be adopted into God's family and be treated as a son, as an heir, as a king? For those who know God in Christ will never, ever be separated from that love. And yes, even in this life, can know and believe and behave as those who are more than conquerors through God who loved us. Amen.